welcome to Quaker Faith and Podcast, where we will explore traditional Quaker beliefs and the variety of Quaker beliefs found today. Welcome back to Quaker Faith and Podcast. We are your hosts, Mackenzie and Micah, and we're going to be talking about traveling ministry and visiting families, which is section 5E in the book Traditional Quaker Christianity. And handily, both Micah and I have both done traveling ministry now. Very cool. Um, do you want to... It's, right. fun, it's funny because the, the book the book treats traveling ministry primarily as a, in the past tense as something that used to happen, uh, whereas for me uh, it, it, it's been very much I, I was just discussing with Mackenzie before we started recording that um, I haven't done much traveling ministry in recent years, but uh, in in the uh, in, in in prior years uh, I did pretty extensive traveling ministry and it was it was a major part of my life. Um, and so for me, traveling ministry is very much in the present tense as something that's happening now. Um, and I'd, I'd really like to hear about Mackenzie's experience because she's traveled more recently. Uh, I know for sure out to Oregon. Uh, yeah. I don't know where else. Um, I mean, there was a little bit of Washington as well, but like just across the river. Yeah, I mean, you visited other meetings in the area, oh, right? I've visited, I've visited meetings in um, the in Pennsylvania and Maryland and Virginia, um, and Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, but as actual, like as it actually, but that was more of, I happened to be in such city and gotcha. so on a weekend. And so I should go to meeting on Sunday at wherever the local meeting house is. Gotcha. Um, as opposed to my recent travel to Oregon in October was okay. By the time this episode comes out, it won't be so recent, but, <laughs> um, that was traveling ministry, and mm-hmm. um, I had a travel minute from my meeting, um, and you know all of that. Cool. Well, let's let's talk about that. But first, I wonder if we could just have a little bit of uh, historical background about traveling ministry. Um, the early Quaker movement really started out as what I would call like an apostolic movement, where uh, things were happening all over the place, and there was essentially like a traveling band of ministers that like sort of fanned out across the countryside and we're just like stoking fires everywhere. And there's a sort of a constant movement around. It's like, as in any revolutionary movement, sort of the main instigators were constantly moving around and uh, stirring stuff up wherever they went and helping to, especially as the movement grew, helping to establish communities and firm up communities uh, where they where they emerged. And I would say that unlike now, they were very organized. Yes, and and they dedicated their full time to it as well. Um, which I, I think uh, is, is is distinctive from even even how things were maybe um, fifty years later, where uh, traveling ministry became um, something uh, that an extraordinary few people did, and usually for a season, uh, or in some cases several years. They were doing very extensive travels, but it was it was seen it was seen as being sort of like um, a how to how to put this. Uh, Something that you did, something almost like a campaign, something that you did for a little while, and then you came back to normal life. Whereas, like for the early Quaker movement, like the 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 Quaker the Quaker apostles and prophets were just like full time doing this stuff. Although I think I think a factor there also is that a lot of the earliest Quakers, like nowadays, you look at a lot of at least the unprogrammed meetings. I don't know about programmed friends in this regard. Well, I mean, I've visited some of them, but um, in this regard, but. We tend to be much older. Um, there's, you know, generally people over the average age is probably over fifty, um, maybe even sixty. Um, whereas when you look at the first friends, I mean, 
they were teenagers. Yeah. It was like teenagers and early 20-somethings. Yeah. So I really wouldn't be surprised if part of what let them do the full-time traveling ministry was, you know, which was unpaid, was the fact that they were still living at home with mom and dad. Well, so that's, uh, some, some of these folks were single. Um, you know, I think of George Fox was single. James uh, Parnell was a 17-year-old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of them were very young. Um, others, though, uh, James Naylor was actually fairly old for being one of the leaders. He was in his 30s, um, and he had a wife uh, and children back in the north of England. And uh, he just didn't see them for years, uh, which is kind of crazy to think about. But this was actually a pretty common story. Well, and I wonder how they were supported. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure someone knows, uh, but, but I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. Um, I think, I think youth did make a difference. The fact that they could devote themselves this full time. I also think that, uh, you know, gosh, that's like the Mormon gap year thing. I don't think this was like the Mormon gap year. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't think this was anything like the Mormon gap year. <laughs> well, the the young and able to go do ministry full time for a period. I, I think I think that uh, you know George Fox never stopped doing ministry full time. George Fox spent his entire life mm-hmm. um, doing ministry full time, uh, and uh, so did a number of other Quaker ministers. It, it, it helped that some of them died young. Uh, but, <laughs> but 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 the Valley at sixty uh, for the most. I mean, I, I'm. Maybe some went back to other types of employment, but uh, many of the original Quaker ministers, like they were full-time ministers, like this is what they did. And a big, a big distinctive here is that in the early movement, there was financial and material support for the ministers everywhere they went. Now, this isn't to say that they had a salary per se, um, but they, but just like just like the the early apostles, they were financially and materially supported by the church. And actually, since I've mentioned before, having read the book Print Culture and the Early Quakers, one of the things that's talked about in there is that um, Margaret Fell would give advances, um, <clears throat> like cash advances mm-hmm. on things. And and there was a lot of written ministry where like a message would come to them when they were not you know out with a bunch of people and they'd write down the ministry. They would get this printed up at um, the Giles Calvert at the, the Black Eagle. In, in London would print them up and Margaret Fell would pay him to do the printing. Mm-hmm. She would pay him the, the money to have the batch done because she was wealthy. Sure. And then the ministers would take the booklets and pamphlets of what they had written and as they were traveling around they would sell copies too and so they could pay her back for the advance that she made on the printing and mm-hmm. also keep some profit for themselves. Interesting. So uh, they made a little bit of money off the gospel. it's all right though um yeah so the there was this transition though from the early quaker movement where the traveling ministry there was an element of like shoring up existing communities and supporting communities but there was also a huge element of like just public witness and uh evangelism and spreading the news everywhere both in england and beyond to the colonies to the continent of europe uh and as you know as far away as to uh, did, did some early Quakers go to India? They for sure went uh, to the Sultan. Yeah, I don't know about India, but um, Mary Fisher went to the the Sultan in Turkey. Mm-hmm. And folks went like to, to to Catholic Europe and to, to Rome and got tortured by the by by the Catholics um, and stuff like it that. Mentions Hooten went to Barbados. Yeah, yeah, Barbados. Um, so there, but there's this transition from the early period where it was like massively massively uh, apostolic and evangelical to uh, sort of a retreat 
later on where it became much more focused on traveling ministry to uh, existing Quaker communities. Um, and, and, and this this is sort of the model of traveling ministry that when most Quakers who are fairly who are fairly in the know about Quaker things, uh, when they talk about traveling ministry, the model that they think back to for traveling ministry tends to be the quietest model uh, of tra- I think when we think about like how Quakers used to do things, we tend to stop at the quietest model of everything. Right. Yeah. And, I, and uh, you, you may, you may have, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you may have picked up. Um, I, for my part, tend to prioritize the early movement and look at the quietest period as, while not, while not a complete tragedy, um, not, not, not the peak of, not the peak of Quakerism. And in fact, Quakerism is being, uh, I think, I think when, when most, when most well-educated Quakers, and when I say well-educated, well-educated as Quakers, when most well-educated Quakers look back, like look back for inspiration, um, for structures and how we do things and process, they tend to look back to the quietest period. I don't. I tend to look back to the early movement. Um, but so we see this transition from in the early movement to being very outward focused and surely, you know, supporting existing communities. That, there's a big part of that. But um, a huge part of what the early movement was doing was being a movement and spreading and advancing the gospel everywhere and reaching out to people who had not heard it yet or who were resistant to it even. Um, in, the, in, the later, in the later period, like in the quietest period and on, it became much more focused on the existing community and essentially a, uh, a pastoral and prophetic role to the existing community. Um, and uh, that's, that's sort of the model that, we, that, that Quakers as a whole um, have inherited and have typically modeled our modern uh, attempts to sort of, there's a lot of reconstructionism in Quakerism right now, of reconstruct and ha- has been for several decades, um, of reconstructing old Quakerism uh, and trying to apply it today. Um, sometimes sort of whole cloth. You see this a lot, in, frankly, in the conservative Quaker world, of basically going back to old, old journals and old traditions and trying to, like, basically carbon copy what was done in the olden days, in the 1800s, and, and apply almost literally to the present moment. Um, and you see that you see that in traveling ministry. And, and I've, I've definitely done some of that myself. And I think as Mackenzie and I talk about our experience, we can talk about some of the ways in which um, a quietist conception of uh, traveling ministry has, has played out in our own ministries. Um, so for, I mean, just to give an example, sort of a procedural example, um, the, the quietist ministers... Um, their authorization to travel. So there's almost a, a passport system uh, and an authorization to travel among, the, like, within different boundaries of Quakers. And so uh, your, your meeting would give you a letter, uh, a traveling letter, uh, that was a letter that your meeting leadership had signed off on, and it had specific geographical boundaries that you were essentially authorized to move in. So you... And it, and it was depending on the leading and the, what you discussed with the leadership in your meeting. Um, but it might be that, you know, you, you felt led by God and the meeting united with you to travel, you know, to the other, to the other meetings in your quarterly meeting. Um, and the, the importance and gravitas of a leading and, and, and the gravitas and experience and prestige of a minister was often, uh, was often det- uh, sort of measured by the scope of their travels. And so an early minister might just travel to the other meetings in their monthly meeting, because back in the old days, you had multiple local meetings 
in a single monthly meeting. They still do that in Britain. Yeah. And actually, um, both I know both Baltimore yearly meeting and New England yearly meeting also have a few of those. So right. So you might so you might just travel to the other local meetings in your area. Then perhaps as you're getting a little bit more experience in the ministry, you might travel across the quarterly meeting to, to visit meetings. Then you might travel to you know to different parts of your yearly meeting, and finally to different yearly meetings. And when you were really big stuff, uh, you might travel across the seas. So if you're from Britain, you might travel to America and vice versa. Um, and that so that pattern that pattern which was which was very strong, like in the 17 and 1800s, um, Quakers today have reproduced that uh, as, as sort of a part of our reconstruction of Quietus Quakerism. So both Mackenzie and I have traveled with travel minutes that specifically outlined uh, where we were sort of authorized to go and who we were going to see and sent greetings to those communities. I wonder if maybe Mackenzie can talk about her experience in Oregon of how that worked. Um, well, I would say that I think the, the reconstruction is a good word to use there because I do have the impression that travel traveling ministry sort of mostly died out through a lot of the 20th century. Um, and I think we also sort of see this with, um, and, and, and so, so my travel to Oregon was, I was visiting, um, the, I was visiting, what my letter said was Sierra Cascades yearly meeting, which is a new yearly meeting that is forming as, um, Northwest yearly meeting, which is an evangelical friends group, um, splits and they're splitting because, well, I mean, there's plenty of historical stuff, but the straw that broke the camel's back is LGBT inclusion. As it always is, it seems to be. Yeah, at least nowadays, that's that's what the straw keeps being. Um, and rather, that was on a it was one day on a Saturday, and rather than just go up for a weekend, I went for an entire week. And um, one thing about having a traveling minute um, and that formal structure is that then getting hospitality at your destination is easier. So um, I, I stayed in the homes of two different friends um, during the course of that week. Getting secret though, here's the, here's the secret. Getting hospitality with Quakers is actually really easy. So it's true. Just yeah, just to keep that well, keep that in mind. If any of y'all are thinking about traveling somewhere for whatever reason, yes, it's true. You can you can you can contact me and be like, hey, I'm going to be in town, uh, and and something might work. Um, at one point, uh, one of the friends up there suggested that I might come up for a few weeks. At which point, then getting hospitality for a few weeks is harder, and mm -hmm. having the traveling minutes. Traveling minute would make that much easier. Yeah, for sure. Um, and 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 sorry to interrupt, but it changes the dynamic of your stay. Or when you're staying as like someone who's just in town, then it's more like Airbnb or or like or like couch surfing. But if you're staying, if you're traveling formally, it's not so much about the minute, but the, the understanding that you're traveling formally in the ministry, um, it changes the nature of your home stays too. Where like you're actually like for better or for worse, and usually for better, you're expected to minister to the people's homes who, who you visit. Um, well, I was staying with an elder, so I don't think there was you can, you can so, minister, so much in expectation of that. You can minister to elders. Um, <laughs> but, um, so I visited several several different local meetings up there, which, um, and I'm going to continue saying meeting, even though I know, like, officially they have church in their names, but, like, what I've noticed is that they say meeting, too. Um, and um, because of as you said, it being a, a sort of reconstruction, I did find that some of them were not familiar with travel minutes. They're like, wait, I do what? I'm like, you down. And I guess I should explain for those listening that 
the minute says, you know, who I am and, and, uh, how I'm known in my meeting and, uh, that I've been led to travel and the meeting unites with, unites with this and, um, it might say the purpose of the travel, etc., and signed by the clerk after it's been approved by the entire meeting. But then the meetings that you visit, the clerks of those meetings give an endorsement at the bottom, and they um, might say something about you. Like, they might just say, it was very nice to have so-and-so here worshiping with us mm-hmm. today. Sign. Or they might say something much longer. Or it might say, you know, Mackenzie was really disruptive, and we, we're, <laughs> we're, we're shocked that you sent her an RPM, and you should really rethink this. Right, it could say that too. That's the original Hopefully. purpose. The, the original purpose was like, it's sort of like, uh, you know, when you take Uber, like you can give feedback on your driver. Yes. Uh, this is like the original version of that. You can give feedback on your minister. But you really hope that it's only going to end up being good feedback, that they have not done something that's going to result in negative feedback. Right. Um, but this this, this this is historically, and, and the reconstruction can serve, can serve the same purpose. Historically, this is a form of accountability. Mm-hmm. Um. So what did you do when you were traveling? Like, so we talked about the procedure, but what did you actually do when you were traveling the ministry in Oregon? Um, so since the the split is about LGBT inclusion, um, I was actually that was that was the concern that I was carrying was was about that inclusion. And so um, the primary thing that I was going for was the quarterly gathering of the Sierra Cascades yearly meeting, and. Things that they had on their agenda were things like um, dealing with what's going to be in their faith and practice when they write up their their faith and practice because um, they're not just going. I mean, they fundamentally disagree with some of the things that are Northwest Yearly Meetings faith and practice, so they're not going to just keep using that one. Mm-hmm. Um, although historically, in schisms, often meetings did yearly meetings did just keep using the same faith and practice. Mm-hmm. Simply, they interpreted differently, um, and. Um, they were talking about um, possibly joining Friends United meeting, um, which which meetings were going to be joining Sierra Cascades versus Independent, etc. Um, I went to the um, the committee meeting that was um, for Faith and Practice, and I brought with me Baltimore Yearly Meetings Faith and Practice because they were comparing between different yearly meetings. Do you guys that, have a new one yet? No, it's still the 1988 one. Okay, good to know. All right. Um, the 2013 one was thrown out. Yeah, that was that was quite that was quite a spectacle. I was there for that one. Oh. Yeah. Okay. It was it was it was interesting. This total side note, it was interesting to see Baltimore Yearly Meeting like just throw out the faith and practice they've been working on for several years and and start over. You, well, and well, or not or not start over. Oh no, they they they're starting over, but they decided on a new procedure for doing so. Okay. So anyway, um, at at Sierra Cascades, um, like they were talking about comparing, um, well, we should see what do other yearly meetings say about authority mm-hmm. in their faith and practice. Um, Baltimore doesn't say anything. The word authority does not exist in our faith and practice at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and what about membership? Because one of the, you know, the, the, one of the big issues for um, the splitting of Northwest yearly meeting was that if you were a member of the LGBT community, you could not be a member of meeting at all which is a more hardline stance than any other yearly meeting that I've heard of. Um, I mean, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. in a lot of the evangelical yearly meetings, I, I had, I don't know for sure. I had the impression that can't be a member versus can't get married was interesting. 
Yeah. Interesting. Um, but... So it's, it's interesting you say that you were traveling under a particular concern for LGBT inclusion. Um, and and it's, in, it's interesting to me because uh, in my experience of traveling ministry, um, especially among liberal Quakers, I, I typically, I won't, I'm not necessarily typically, I often came across uh, ministers who were traveling the ministry and when they were traveling the ministry, they were traveling with a very specific concern. So they'd be like, I'm traveling the ministry with a concern for earth care witness. I'm traveling the ministry mm-hmm. with a concern for Native American rights. I'm traveling with a concern for this, that, or the other. And that's not as typical in, in, in what I call classical Quakerism, which is the quietest period. Mm-hmm. Um, in classical Quakerism, uh, typically the concern, now there was still this language of concern, but typically, not always, typically the concern was gospel ministry, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty broad. Yes. Uh, but typically the concern is gospel ministry. And when I traveled in, in the ministry, uh, typically my concern uh, was gospel ministry. Uh, and, and the travel minute, so uh, I, for, for, for quite a while I traveled under a minute from great, for several years I traveled under sort of an open minute uh, that didn't specify a geographical location um, from Great Plains yearly meeting in Kansas, Nebraska, and Oklahoma. And my concern was gospel ministry. And so there wasn't like a sort of particular issue mm-hmm. uh, that, that my ministry was directed at, but instead um, sort of preaching the gospel, uh, meeting with communities, uh, revitalization of meetings, um, basically anything, anything, anything to sort of uh, lift up the gospel witness uh, and, and, and strengthen the church. Uh, so my, my experience of sort of, my experience of traveling the ministry and my experience of sort of the procedural side of it um, was maybe a little bit different just in like, it was very open-ended. I had, I had a standing travel. It wasn't like a travel minute for a particular trip. Mm-hmm. I had a standing travel minute that was renewed each year. Um, and I know there's somebody in my meeting who has, has one of those. Yeah. And so like, it was, it was interesting because like I would come back, like, again, like I was very active in traveling ministry for a few years there. And like, I would come back, it was almost ridiculous. I would come back to yearly meeting with my travel minute with like, you know, I, I forget how many, like many, many endorsements, like pages. I had multiple pages of endorsements wow. on my travel minute because I've been to all these different places, visited all these yearly meetings and monthly meetings and quarterly meetings, all this stuff. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I think, I think that in some ways, uh, I think in a lot of ways, uh, sort of that procedure functioned as a sort of ministerial accountability for me. Mm-hmm. while I was basically serving as a minister under the care of Great Plains Yearly Meeting. Um, and for those of you out there listening, under the care is a way that Quakers say under the authority of. Uh, even if they won't use that word, that's what it <laughs> means. Because you're basically operating as their agent. Um, you're under their authority. So I felt a lot of pressure during um, my <clears throat> clearance committee meeting um, and when talking to um, the the woman, you know, one woman who hosted me on the trip, to specify a concern, mm. and so that's why I said it that way. Um, because, I mean, what I knew of the situation was that there were a lot of people who had been hurt by everything leading up to the split, sure. and um, and and you know, there's a difference. There's a, there's a huge difference between um, intellectually believing that um, someone 
you know, that, that some, someone or some demographic, et cetera, should be um, treated fairly and, and equally, et cetera. Um, and actually doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, you have, there are plenty of, of people who would not say that they're, you know, they'd say, oh, I'm not racist. And then they do something like just assume that um, somebody who is visibly Latino speaks Spanish. Like, okay, you know what? They could be like, their great, 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 great grandfather was <laughs> whatever. Or they could they be don't... Native American. Right. Or that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, the sorts of microaggressions. And so I had been aware that there was hurt from before the split and still ongoing um, hurt for, for some friends up there who are part of the LGBT community. And so um, lending support to them was was part of it and um, trying to be supportive of the creation of this new yearly meeting that's that's trying to do a new thing. Um, that was that was how I talked about it with my clearance committee. Cool. Do you think that was helpful? Do you think it was helpful to travel with an explicit concern? As opposed to just like a concern to visit them? I think yeah, because I think it changes some of the conversations you have. Mm-hmm. Um because people ask, well, why did, why did you want to, to visit here specifically? Right. And so being able to say um, that, you know, it's because I'm, I'm concerned about, um, about people feeling included and welcomed and um, f- that, they, that they are fully, fully members and fully part of the life of the meeting. So, uh, just sort of to conclude here, I wonder, uh, do you, th- this whole this whole episode has been about the traveling ministry, and I feel like in some ways we've covered a lot of ground, in other ways we've been surprisingly narrow, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I don't know quite what to do about that in terms of wrapping this episode, <laughs> um, but... Uh, we didn't talk about traveling, actually. Anyway. Well, I, I, I sort of wonder if we could just, to conclude, if we could just talk about like where we sort of see the state of traveling ministry now... Uh, and a couple of things. First of all, in the book, uh, frankly, I thought the authors were very negative about the state of traveling ministry and s- sort of implying that in most places outside of Ohio yearly meeting, uh, traveling ministry isn't real traveling ministry, but is instead sort of like conference hopping or something, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I found a little bit disrespectful, honestly, of like other of like other friends. Yeah. They said, visiting among friends in the 20th and 21st centuries has often become little more than shallow socializing, during which weighty spiritual topics and personal spiritual concerns are rarely discussed. A second, more serious purpose of this latter-day visiting is for conflict resolution in troubled meetings or the presentation of some personal or political concern. So, I, I don't know quite what they're referring to. I think that they're probably referring to what is called intervisitation, which is like a separate category of visiting. And in that case, that's true. Um, intervisitation, this is like a technical term among, among Quakers, um, intervisitation is more what was just said of, uh, although I would not say little more than, but uh, intervisitation is typically um, what it sounds like. It's visiting between different groups of Quakers simply for uh, the purpose of building up relationships and making sure we know one another and have, have friendships. Um Right, and I connected my travel to the intervisitation program that Baltimore Yearly Meeting has, um, mm-hmm. which was developed um, 
<laughs> this again goes back to LGBT things. Um, years ago, Baltimore Yearly Meeting had a clerk who was gay and um, was um, not allowed to speak at this big Quaker gathering. In Africa. Yeah. And um, when after this all happened, there was sort of this realization that, oh, we're really, really a lot farther from the same page than we'd realized. And so we need to work on on getting more in touch and having more relationship with these other yearly meetings um, so that we can, um, even if we're not in full agreement, we, there can at least not be animosity. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we can at least be friendly. Um, but also we can each learn to see where the other's coming from. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's... Which is kind of the conflict resolution part of that, too. Well, I'd actually like to peel off the conflict resolution part because I think that's a specific thing. Um, in terms of intervisitation, like, there's entire organizations built around it. There are committees, like, in Baltimore, really meeting for, for intervisitation of just, like, building connections, right, and making sure there are relationships between different Quaker bodies. There's Friends World Committee on... Uh, Friends World Committee on... Consultation. Consultation. FWCC. I always say the acronyms. I forget the actual words in there. Um, FWCC... Their whole purpose is is essentially intervisitation of like just building connections, right, between right. different Quaker bodies. Um, oh, and we should note that they actually just started a new intervisitation travel ministry program, like sort of like scholarshipy, like where you can apply and they will fund your travel and ministry. Cool. Um, but so like, but I agree, I agree with the authors of the book we're reading in the sense that intervisitation is not the same thing as traveling ministry. Um, it, intervisitation, you don't need, you don't, you don't need a, um, you don't need a particular leading of God to, uh, to, to be ministering in a particular community. You just have to have goodwill and a desire for connection. That's it. Uh, and that's wonderful. That's a good thing. I think intervisitation is great. Um, but traveling in the ministry is, is a certain, sort of a different thing, particularly in the sense of traveling in the gospel ministry, uh, traveling with a concern for gospel ministry, um, that is more about, um, there's more, frankly, there's more authority associated with that. And there's a sense that you're traveling uh, with God's guidance and with, uh, with, with ministry to give to the communities that you are visiting. And so I actually think that they mention uh, conflict resolution as sort of another kind of fake ministry that's being done now. Um, and I don't think that's fake at all. In fact, I think that um, travel in the ministry uh, conflict resolution is a concern to travel under. And I don't mean conflict resolution as a, as a topic or like as a workshop to be presented. I mean, for example, meetings, communities, people are often in conflict and, 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 and relationships are strained and sp splits happen and meetings implode and all sorts of terrible things happen uh, because of unresolved conflict and, and infighting uh, in our communities. And, I think it's a it's a it's a it, it is a very legitimate form of traveling in the ministry to travel to a community uh, invited by that community uh, to help with the process of conflict resolution and transformation of conflict. So I think you know I think and that that's that's uh, that's that's an integral part of what leadership of what spiritual leadership does in church communities. Any denomination or yearly meeting worth its salt. Uh, is able to effectively intervene in communities where conflict is getting out of control and help to bring things back into order. 
so that uh, that is that is absolutely uh, a form of ministry as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean I would agree. Um, and just to quickly touch on, there's a bit in the book where it talks about traveling companions, how it was um, common to travel in pairs, not singly, mm -hmm. um, which uh, yeah. lets lets the companion act as sort of a check on the minister. Um, or, or, or a learner. Right. Um, although it, it does say not to think of it like internship or mentoring when you put somebody who is newer to ministry with someone who, who is experienced. But I think there are pluses and minuses to that thought. I, I think you wouldn't want to think that the, that the mentee had nothing to say right. or had nothing to contribute. So that would be negative. If you thought that the younger, more inexperienced person was just sort of along for the ride, that would be bad. Right. But I do think it. I do think it is historically. If you want to be reconstructionist about it, <laughs> it's historically accurate to say that the pattern has been to send younger, younger and more inexperienced ministers with seasoned ones, so that they can learn. Although also sometimes um, sending a, an elder with the minister. Yes. Um, because the elder's role is spiritual nurture of the minister. Yeah, but I, I think just in general, this is also reconstructionist. But I think it is good reconstruction. I think this pattern has always existed for a reason. Um, that we do better when we move in pairs. I mean, Jesus sent out his, his disciples in pairs. Mm -hmm. um, we do better when we move in pairs uh, or in small groups. Uh, but pairs are pair is a good is a good formation um, because it's small enough that we're still uh, as ministers we're still nimble. We can still stay in one house, uh, and we we uh, we're not too much of a burden on the community with visit. But there is that check. There is that ability to like get perspective. Not even like. Not even in the sense of like, oh, the minister, like the prime, you know, the, the main minister, if you want to think of it that way, um, needs to be checked in case he or she is doing something bad. But in the sense of like, I as a minister traveling the ministry, I've been in crazy situations where I'm like, I just don't even know what's happening with this group of people. I'm confused. And it's good to have uh, a second set of eyes to sort of ground yourself in an outside reality from the situation you're in. And at times I've traveled with traveling companions, which has been very helpful. At other times when I haven't had traveling companions and have felt the need to travel alone in the ministry, um, fortunately through technology I've had the ability to be on phone calls with people who can help ground me in a reality outside of the situation I find myself in. So that's super helpful. I, I was going to ask, did you have traveling companions? Yeah, um, I, that, sometimes I did have traveling companions. That's ideal. Um, but other, other times I've traveled without traveling companions and phones are wonderful. Yes, they are. I did not have a traveling companion going to Oregon. Um, I mean, I think traveling pretty locally, it's easy to like carpool, but there's no way I'm carpooling to Oregon. That's mm -hmm. like a three-day drive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the British friends are probably now listening to this going, how can you drive for three days? You, there's water. Mm -hmm. um, no, you, you, you might not realize just how big the continental United States is. It's massive. It's, um, I mean, the yeah, the United States is, I think, about the same size of the, as the continent of Europe. Yeah, about, about that. Yeah, and and so, um, so I, I I went alone, but yeah, I had the aid of technology. You can find us on the web at QuakerPodcast.org, as Quaker Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Patreon, and on iTunes.